0: Again to the book of Jude. Today we'll be studying beginning in verse 14 through verse 23. That is Jude verse 14 through 23. If you're new and kind of unfamiliar with Jude, it's a very small book. Uh, just turn to the back. It is right before Revelation, the next to last book of the Bible. Verse 14 through 23, before you read God's holy and errand and his word. Let's go to him word of prayer, asking that his blessing might be added to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so prone to wander away from the light of your grace, the light of your holiness. For Father, sometimes it it frightens us, it scares us. However, Father, we were not made to be children of darkness. We were made children of light. Father, your word so we ask that it would shine into darkness, that it would expose sin, and yet be a guide to the place where sin died, the cross of your son Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. So here now the word of God, Jude verse 14 through verse 23. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This ends the reading of God's holy narrative inspired word, and he writes eternal truths upon all of our hearts. So, most kids when they're young like cartoons. I liked cartoons when I was a kid, but they weren't my favorite thing on television. I like the Discovery Channel. In fact, for a long time, we didn't have cable. All we really had was PBS, maybe some of the local stations. Didn't really care for anything that would come on there, except for the show Nature, that would come on PBS, just because I got to learn about animals. I got to learn about the, the animal kingdom. One of the most fascinating animals that I've learned about in the animal kingdom is, it's not something that... On the surface you would think would be all that interesting. It's a little bird, and it is called the Arctic Tern. Have you ever heard of the Arctic Tern? Yeah, probably not. And that's a real shame. But this really is an incredible little bird. This bird is so afraid of the dark that it has to live in light almost all the time. And so if you want to find the Arctic terrain, you can tell by the name, you got to go pretty far north. you got to go really pretty close to the North Pole. And the reason it wants to live there in the summer months is because in the summer around the North Pole, it is almost never dark. Whenever it does get dark, it's just for a very brief amount of time. They'll go days without, with the sun never setting. They're just always in light. Well, in the wintertime, the opposite takes place. It's almost never light. And so if you're afraid of the dark, what are you going to do? Well, like every other bird, they migrate south. They don't go to Canada. They don't go to North America. They don't go to Mexico. They don't go to South America. They migrate from the North Pole to the South Pole. And they'll do this multiple times during their lifetime. In fact, they will travel in their lifetimes to avoid darkness, the equivalent of going to the moon, not once, not twice, not thrice, but six times times. It is it is the longest migration of any animal in the animal kingdom. In fact, you, you can't migrate more than that. You're going from one side of the world to the other multiple times in your life. It's an amazing thing. Well, we as Christians, we are called children of life. We are called to love the light and to forsake the darkness. But how do we forsake the darkness? Do we become like the Arctic turn and just flee from it? And just try to like dig a hole and just isolate ourselves from the darkness and just live in light perpetually. Well, we don't really have that option. There's actually a it's an ancient idea, but it's kind of kind of kind of come back to a head here recently. It's something called the the, the Benedict Option. It's this idea that like Christians, the world has just gone so far into left field that the only thing we can really do is separate ourselves, isolate ourselves from the world, and just kind of cover eyes and pretend like oh, none of that stuff's out there. Well, here's a problem as much as that might sound good to me sometimes, it won't work. It simply will not work. Darkness will always follow the children of life wherever they go. And the reason that is because as wonderful as the church might be, and as much as I love the church, throughout the last 2,000 years, the church has been made up of 100% sinners. Darkness will always follow us. You will not escape We can all fall head first to the Benedict option, go build monasteries, live there, avoid contact with the outside world, and you know what will happen? The darkness will still find us. So what do we do? If we cannot escape the darkness, if we cannot escape false teaching, if we cannot escape heresy and wickedness, then what do we do? Jude, this morning, is going to tell us how we live in a world how do we live as people of light in a dark place? So this morning, I want to break this passage down into three different parts. First of all, I want us to see the past predictions of the uh, the past predictions of false teachers. Secondly, I want us to see the present divisions, present divisions caused by the false teachers. And then finally, I want us to see Jude's call for patient Christians for the truth. That is past predictions, present divisions, and patient Christians. Let's begin with those past predictions. Look with me there in verses 14 and 15. Here, for the second time in Jude, Jude is quoting an extra-biblical text. Last time we saw it, he put it from a, a book that is actually mostly lost today, a book called The Assumption of Moses, where he described the archangel Michael contending with Satan over the body of Moses. Well, now for the second time, he's quoting another one of these books, the book of Enoch. Now, just for a brief reminder, because sometimes Christians see this and we kind of you know, have a, a bit of a conviction fit about it, it is not bad that he is quoting a book that is not in the Bible. Sometimes we look at that and we say, oh, well, well shoot, we were supposed to have Enoch in our Bible. And so we've made a mistake. No. Just because something is true doesn't mean that it has to be in the Bible. I read lots of things that are true. I don't have a bunch of blank pages at the end of Revelation where I just add things in that are true. Just because something is true does not mean, it mean, does not mean that it needs to be in the Bible. And lots also, too, likewise, just because something isn't in the Bible doesn't mean that it isn't true. It can be true, and that's what he is doing. Enoch here, even though we don't believe it's an inspired text, even though we're not putting it in our Bibles, what Enoch says here, and this prophecy was true, and Jude recognized the truthfulness of it and puts it into this letter that he is writing. Well, what? why is he quoting this? What is the prophecy of Enoch? Well, the prophecy, in a nutshell, is not anything different than we've already seen. Now, in fact, he's kind of repeated himself quite a few times here. The prophecy is this. false teachers will be judged. It may not look like they're going to be judged, they will be. Look at the Pusiasis, Talks about this a lot. Why do good? Why do good if I just get bad things in return? I, I look at all these people and they're doing all these wicked things. They're teaching falsely. They're heretics, and they have a nicer car than me. They have a nicer house than me. They seem to be happier at home than me. Why not just? Why, why not just join them? It looks like everything's working out for them. Jude here, by using Enoch, is telling these Christians don't buy that. Just because it looks like judgment is not coming does not mean that it isn't coming. Judgment will come. But what is new here, what Jude hasn't said to this point is uh, is this. What is new? Christ will return and judge with the saints. So there when he says when, when, when the Lord returns with 10,000 of his holy ones, the term holy ones doesn't just mean angels. It is also a reference to you will, you will not just be judged by Christ. You will judge with Christ if you are in Christ. This is a very biblical concept. Daniel 7 speaks of the saints judging with God. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about it as well. Revelation has a lot of references to it. Uh, i give you just one example here. Matthew 19, the Lord Jesus himself says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jude is encouraging the Christians here. You might be judged. The world might look down upon you. They might think you're a fool for believing the things that you believe and doing the things that you do and refraining from doing the things that you refuse to do. You might be belittled, and as we'll see in a little bit, mocked. But all that judgment, is worthless. We looked at this last week, the idea of the, the waterless clouds. You know, they, they, they promise women, they promise rain, they promise life, but when they come, they don't give you anything. That's the judgment of this world. They come to you with condemnation, but they can't actually do anything against you. They can't actually harm you at all. The judgment of the world is nothing to be feared. As Charles Spurgeon said, when we we fight against the world and Satan, we fight against a toothless dragon. It'll gum you a little bit. It'll gnaw on you. But it's teeth. It's condemnation. It's been robbed of its power. It can do nothing. The judgment of this world is worthless. But you, however, the Christians, You will judge the judges of this world when Christ returns. You will judge with Christ and that is going to be anything but worthless. It is going to contain a weight. It is going to be real. But what is an encouragement to the Christian, the return of Christ and the judgment of Christ only becomes an occasion for the world and for the false teachers to scoff. Look with me down here in verse 18. Here you have the prophecy of the apostles. They say, in the last time, which, by the way, when's the last time? Now. We've been in the last time. We've been in the end time for 2,000 years. It's not something we're waiting on. It's right now. In the last time, for Jude, 2,000 years ago, uh, uh, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The word scoffer there Literally just means to mock. These are mockers. They're making a mockery of what we believe. What exactly is the belief that they are mocking here? Well, it's what Enoch just said. That the Lord will return. This interpretation is, is backed up by Second Peter chapter 3. By the way, just kind of a little side note. Jude and Second Peter, very, very closely parallel. In fact, you can actually look at Jude as maybe being like a, a summary or maybe even a paraphrase of Second Peter. Well, Second Peter 2 Peter 3 gives you this interpretation. It says, uh, w- uh, these are the, the scoffers, the markers, the false teachers in Second Peter speaking. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You say, huh. You, see, you talk about you talk about Christ returning. You're all you're all bent on a shaped about it. You're like, I can't wait for Christ return and to judge. You're warning about judgment, and that was two thousand years ago. I mean, you keep talking about it. But when, when is it actually going to happen? And they mock it. Well, Peter goes on and tells us that actually puts us in a pretty good company. Puts us in the company of the warn Stood on a boat. Proclaim to the world, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. What do they do? They mock him. They say, what a fool this guy is. It's never rained. There's never been a judgment like this. And then what happened? It eventually came. Do not count God as being slow, For in him a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. If he is said judgment is coming, it is coming. He is not slacked and fulfilling his promises. Let's speak about being judged. None of us like being judged. I don't like being judged. I don't like being put on the stand. I don't know, like shot on people you know, picking over every little thing that I've done wrong or every little thing that I've said wrong. You, you're probably... Sunday nights, after I preach, I can't turn my brain And I'm not sitting here thinking about how good I did. All I'm thinking about is what I could have said that I didn't. What I should have said that I didn't. What I actually said that I shouldn't have. Was I clear? Did people understand me? Did I go off on a tangent? All I can do is think of all the things that I did not get quite. You know what? I don't sleep on Sunday. Nights. If you ever get bored at two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday night, there's a pretty good chance you can come over to the man's and come and sit down, and we'll have a little talk. Because I'm probably up. i will probably up too. It is so nice to have Mondays all I can I can sleep a little later. I can get up and just kind of take it easy and just decompress from the day. I don't like judgment. judgment keeps me up. None of us like judgment. And because of that. When it comes to being a creature of light in a world of darkness, we fear the judgment of those who live in darkness. And we fear it because we fear the the rejection. None of us like to be rejected. And we're afraid if I go into the world and I say something like, I believe that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter was executed under Roman authority but was also executed under the wrath of God because in God's mercy, he sovereignly decreed that he would take my sin off of me and put it on that Jewish altar on the cross. And then to make sure I knew that that counted, just to make sure that I knew that I am in fact justified, three days later, he rose him from the dead. I'm afraid to tell the world that because what are they do? There's not even God. There was a God. We need a God. God became flesh. We no. don't like that. We go into the world and say, I, I believe that there's an objective thing called good. There's an objective thing called evil. I don't believe that, that when we say that, well, what's good for you is good for you. I, that's not right. Good is good and bad is bad. And then our subjective world looks at that and says, You're unkind. You're unloving. Oh, you're, Christian, you're just a judge. And we don't like that. And we recoil away from it. Why? Because it hurts. But what I want you to understand is this. What we're actually fearing, that rejection, is brought on because we feel like we're losing something that we already have. And that is But when we fear, when we fear losing in grace, we're fearing losing something that we have and eternal. It's like my son, I love my son to death, but the one thing that he does that tells me to death is when we're eating, you we have a plate full of food, and he'll be like, more. I want more. just fingers. More. More. I'm looking at him like, your plate is full. You want more of what you already have in abundance. When you seek out the embrace of the world, you're seeking more of something that you already have in abundance and far greater than what the world can offer you. The world can offer you an embrace, but it's corrupt, it's fallen, it's, it's rancid, it's rotting. What you have in Jesus Christ is an embrace that is eternal, it will not end, and it is unchanging. Nothing you can do, or nothing that I can do, will ever, ever, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. What you need, what you really want, you already have. And as soon as you begin to accept it, and as soon as you begin to understand it, the judgments of this world, the cares of this world, at the not theirs to take. They did not give nor can they take it. It is God who justifies who is to give. Moving on now to our second. What is the consequences of the false teachers' actions? They're going around Passing doubt. What is it that they're actually contributing? What are they actually doing? So the answer is, for second point, present divisions. Look at what Jude says in verse 16. He says, these are, once again, describing the false teachers. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their simple desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism gain an advantage do you know something about that there should be something familiar I don't mean familiar because well I know somebody just like that I know somebody like that too he's he's sitting in this pulpit preaching a sermon we're all like that but in the way he sets this up he is setting this up as by doing this by being a grumbler by being a boaster and by seeking to gain favoritism so it to getting an advantage by favoritism. He's setting this up and showing us that by doing this, we are living out and confessing a false gospel. In order to receive the gospel and communicate, you really need two things. One, you need to practice. You need sin to be a thing. You need to shine light onto that. If, if, some, if someone doesn't know that they're sick, they're not going to seek out a doctor. If someone doesn't know, doesn't know that they're under the wrath of God, they're not going to seek out a savior. Sin needs to be pointed out. Things that are wrong need to be pointed out. And then, Christ is to be shown as being a Savior, who is sufficient at saving. Well, what do we see here? Grumblers and malcontents. Remember, these false teachers, they're not out in the world. They're in the church. Well, what would a false teacher in the church be grumbling about? Well, it's the depravity of the church. The depravity of the people in the church. Oh, these people—they're greedy. They're unloving. They're unkind. Oh, they got—they got problems. They're not just the people in the pews. A pastor, that hypocrite. The elders, bunch of snobs. The deacons, lazy. They do nothing. Problem, problem, problem. Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Then, what? loud mouthed boasters. Why would you? highlight everybody else's problems and then turn around and boast. It's because you're making yourself out to be a messiah type of All these people who, who are trying to lead us, all these people that you're sitting at, they all got problems. But I don't. I'm no hypocrite. I walk the walk. I talk to talk. I'm not greedy. I'm generous. I'm not lazy. I'm hardworking. They got problems, but I'm righteous. And then in order to gain an advantage. They whisper sweet notes. They they tickle ears. And before you sit there and think, well that that won't work on me, it works. Ear tickling works. I'll give you an example. I'll edit out names and places. But I know of a church, a Presbyterian church, who had a pastor who the session had discovered that he was into some shady stuff. And they confronted him called him to repent. They refused it. I'm not doing anything wrong. And they decided, no, you have done something wrong. You're not repentant of it, and they asked the pastor to resign. And the pastor refused to resign. He says, I'm not going to resign and you cannot fire me because I have the congregation on my side. And he was right. He did. The session brought some of this stuff up to the congregation. And they turned their backs on the session. Every elder, except for one, left this church because of this issue. Well, a year or two later, when it came out that the pastor had been dealing some very shady stuff, I don't know how he avoided jail time, he left the church, that church splintered, fractured, a lot of pain. And if you went to any of these members of the congregation, I've heard members of this congregation say, Why? Why? Did you back the pastor against the pleading of your session? The answer is, he was such a nice guy. The serpent said some very nice things in the garden. It works. Jude is pleading with us like the session was pleading. Be on guard. What does he say in verse 19? It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Well, you're not devoid of the Spirit. You have the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order. And what is the Spirit's work? Yes, He produces righteousness and fruit. But His chief work is to unite you to Jesus Christ. To bring you into union and oneness with Him. And then that oneness is reflected in your oneness with one another. Paul refers to you, the church, as being the body of Christ. You're made up of different members. You're distinct from one another. But you're not separate from one another. And what happens... So yeah, I can distinguish my hand hand from my arm. What happens when I separate my hand from my arm? issue with division. Sometimes division is is good. It's called church discipline. Sometimes for the sake of the purity of the church, the purity of our confession, the sake of the honor of the name of Christ, we have to divide. Sometimes division, though unfortunate, is still necessary. I don't know if you saw the sign when we came in, but it said Salem Presbyterian Church, not Salem Methodist Church or Salem Baptist Church. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ from other denominations, but we, we we disagree on some 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 pretty important points. And for the sake of the peace of the church, I think it's good that we're here and they're over there. They're, I'm still one with them; they are still in Christ. But I think that is a, a an unfortunate but a necessary division. But some divisions are just silly. I've heard of, I've heard churches church splitting over walls. The and, but the point is, no matter what the reason for the is, it is always something to seek to avoid Why? Because it's painful. You know what you call, call it when you separate a body part from the body? You call it an amputation. And whenever there's an amputation, even if it is necessary. Like, hey, I have my leg amputated to avoid an infection and save my life. The person isn't very happy missing a part of themselves to strive for unity by being careful not to cause unnecessary divisions. There is such a thing as a healthy suspicion of ourselves. things. It's very easy to sit around and to think well,
1: you know, I'm right
0: and everybody else is wrong. Well, maybe before speaking fumbling, and complaining, maybe stop and ask the question, am I, why? Now it might be that you have something legitimate to grumble about and to complain about, it might be, but ask yourself the question, why am I doing it? Why am I griping? Is it to heal, to fix a problem? Am I griping so that truth may prevail? Am I griping so that by pointing out other people's problems, I can make myself a serious question to consider. Now it would be nice to think that one day we can get past all these divisions and hurt doings and false teachings and one day we will, but that will not be until Christ returns and we are given glorified bodies and glorified minds and glorified spirits. But until then this is the situation that we live in. So how do we conduct ourselves in the in-between? Jude is now going to call us to live as patient Christians as we await Return of Christ. Look with me in verse twenty one. First, he says, "Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life." Wait. Now, that first, tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that you have not already received mercy. That you have not already received mercy abundantly. What, is, what does Paul say in Romans eight one? There is now, therefore, now, no condemnation in Jesus Christ. You're not waiting for no condemnation. You have it right here and right now. That's the doctrine of justification in a nutshell. The word justified, justification, it's a it's a judicial term. It literally is verdict. Verdicts are not rendered over time. Sentences are. But verdicts are once and for all and unchanging. If you do something wrong, you go to a court, you're found guilty, and you serve a 10-year prison sentence. After 10 years, you're done with your sentence. That doesn't mean you're innocent you still committed the crime. You still received the verdict. You are guilty, and that does not change. When God declares that you are righteous, not by your own works, but by the imputed righteousness and goodness of Jesus Christ, that does not change. You have it really right here, right now. We talk about fearing judgment. Sometimes we think of Christ returning and judging the living and the dead, and we're scared to death. If you are in Christ, you have right now received that verdict. You have reached into the end time and you have brought back a verdict. And it says, innocent, righteous, guiltless, blameless. The perfection, and the righteousness of God has been received by you, by faith, by grace alone. That does not change. So what does he mean, wait for mercy? As also as justification is. It is the doctrine on which the church either stands or falls. I, I, I agree with Martin Luther on that. As good as that is, That is just the beginning of the mercies of God. Your life is going to be full of mercy. Maybe you were justified five minutes ago. Just wait. Just wait. It's going to be mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy. The Christian life is like proceeding through a field and just finding more diamonds and gems and pearls. It's the nature of God to shower his people with mercies. So you who have been justified and already received the mercy of God, just wait. More is on the way. You're going to receive so much mercy, you're going to be brimming over with it. It's going to to ooze out of you. So much so that you cannot help but give mercy to other people, even to the false teachers. By the way, what I'm about to read to you here, Jude here is referencing the false teachers. Who are you supposed to share mercy to? Those who would seek to lead us astray, show them mercy. What does he say? Verse twenty-two and twenty-three. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by sin. To explain this, I want to give you a couple of negations, some some knots. First of all, we are this in this passage. Jude is not calling us to be Arctic terms. He gives us commands. Have mercy and save. Those are imperatives. You can't do that in a hole in the ground. In order to do that, you need to be a bright face in a dark place. The mercy of God is going to shine into dark places. God, Jesus, is going to call his sheep to himself. How? Through your mercy. It is through being merciful That God will draw his people to himself. How do you deal with the false teachers? Have mercy upon them. Secondly, this does not mean, by showing mercy to the false teachers, that does not mean that we are excusing their sin. God did not excuse our sin. He atoned for our sin in a most brutal way. God does not take sin lightly. Neither should we. But what does Jude say here? Hating even the garments stained by sin, not the person who's in the garments, but the garment itself. I, I really hate to quote this, but you know, love the uh, love the sinner and hate the sin. I, I hate to say that because it's though know, I think it's true. A um, survey came out. I think it was Christianity Day a number of years ago, asking Christians what their favorite Bible verses were, and that was like in the top ten. Mahatma Gandhi said that. That, that is not in the Bible, but it is a concept and that's what that's a concept that Jude is trying to get to us here. It is the garment that you hate. It is what they do that you hate, but them, remember who you once were. You were once by nature a child of a child of wrath, but now you are a child of light. Love them and be merciful to them. Thirdly, we do not engage with unbelievers without first preparing ourselves. I don't know if you notice this little strange thing that you says here, but he says, "Show mercy with fear." It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? How do you show mercy with fear? What are we? What are we? What exactly are we to fear exactly? Well, the answer is falling into temptation. When we witness to people, when we show mercy to people, we're showing mercy to people who are carrying with them the same temptations that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with. Now temptation is unavoidable. And that's a good thing. It, the, the word of God tells us that, that, that through temptation our faith is tested. The genuineness of our faith is, is shown through temptation. But it would be foolish to go into battle without first being armed. It would be foolish to go out and try to fight an enemy who never having been taught how to wield a sword or to shoot a gun or something like that. You need to be prepared. If you're going to show mercy, you need to prepare yourself. You need to guard yourself. Look at, what, look at what Jude says in verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. That word keep there literally means guard. Guard yourself in the love of God. Well, how do you guard yourself in someone else's love? First thing you gotta do, you gotta know it. You gotta know the love of God. What is what does he say? Build yourself up in faith. How does that take place? You're doing it right now. You're sitting under the preaching of the word. When you, when you go home and you open up your Bible for a devotion, you're building yourself up in the faith. Once again, this is not speaking of the act of faith. This is speaking of the content of faith. Build yourself up in the knowledge of the love of God. But then also express that love. It's one thing to say, oh, God loves me, and then that should cause something to happen. <laughs> if you believe that God loves you, that though he is holy and though you are a sinner, that should lead to some type of expression. Not just, God loves me, and then it's moving on. No, no, no. How does it express itself? Prayer in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the expression of our love for God. God expresses his love to us in Jesus Christ, who is revealed in his word. We express our love for him by being obedient to his commandments and praying to him with our minds and with our hearts and with our souls in the Holy Spirit. One last warning, though. Do not be overly confident. Pride comes before the fall. Temptations cannot be avoided, and that is good, as I have said. They show the genuineness of of our faith. But be suspicious of your abilities to not fall into temptation. Always be on guard. Here's a, a great word of advice from the Puritan Richard Baxter on persevering through the temptations of the false teachers. He says... If you are unavoidably cast upon a strong temptation, put on the full armor of God and resist as if your life depended on it. Consider each temptation as an offer of the devil to lead you into damnation. Suppose you heard him say, take this in exchange for your salvation. Sell me this for your God, soul and everlasting hope. Commit this sin that you may be tormented in hell forever. Do this to please your flesh, displease your God, and to grieve your Savior. This is the truth behind every temptation. You have heard the game plan. You have heard the unspoken part of temptation. That is always what Satan is trying to do. We talked about division. He is seeking to divide you from God. But God has promised that he will not lose you that nothing will be able to separate you from, from his love. But he uses means. And what does that mean that he uses? The knowledge of his love. You have to know that you are loved. And you cannot know a thing, if you you cannot know a person if you don't communicate with that person. If they do not speak to you and you do not speak to them. So now you know the design of the devil, but have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you not had your portion of his love and mercies? Has the love that poured from the wounds of Christ not made the taste of sin bitter in your mouth? Be consumed in the revelation of the love of God that is found in his word, and that love will guard your heart from those whose hearts you seek to save. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much that though you have seen fit not to call us out of darkness, but you have given the promise that one day Christ will return and we will be delivered from the darkness. But until that time, Father, we pray that we would be built up in our faith through your word and that that word might begin to come through us as as we pray to you in the Holy Spirit. May we be people of the book. May we be people of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.